Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourself up. I told that five-story building. You're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75, 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you. And O'Reilly, they can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you don't have a, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisoners in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they over-incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marching, they never changed anything. Angel Adams says her children are a gift from God, but now she needs help caring for them. Adams is blaming the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office Child Protection Team and others for her problems. In my case, it has been in my life six months, and I'm homeless. 37-year-old Angel Adams blames the system for her problems, a system of social service agencies trying to help her. Adams has 15 children, 12 who are now living with her in this small motel room. While we were in the room, the children had no food available, no shoes, and Adams says they haven't had a change of clothes in more than three days. A concerned employee of the motel called us after seeing her plight. Landlords recently evicted Adams and her children from this Tampa apartment after discovering she was living there with her 12 children. 
The kids' clothes, books, toys, and furniture are now out on the curb, picked over by scavengers. The building's owners say they gave ample warning to Adams, warnings they say she chose to ignore. We tried to help them, and, and, and um, I think several other agencies, you know, with paying of her rent and, and the paying of her utilities and stuff, um, you know, did more than their part. But Adams says her life didn't start to fall apart until social service agencies got involved. Her fiancé, Gary Brown Sr., the man who fathered 10 of her 15 children, was arrested, and Adams says she was left with nothing. I don't have any clothes. Uh, people been donating food just around here, just helping me out with food, and I don't have anything. We called the Department of Children and Families to see what they've been doing to help. DCF says Hillsborough Kids Incorporated has been helping by paying Adams rent, even providing her furniture. Adams says it isn't enough. Somebody needs to pay for all my children and my and Gary, all our suffering, all our Somebody needs to be held accountable and they need to pay. DCF Regional Director Nick Cox wanted to see for himself the situation that Adams now finds herself in. I know there's some help that's been coming your way, but. What I'm concerned about right now is I want to make sure, number one, that for, the, for, for right now, you know, all of you and your kids don't belong in that one room. Tonight, Angel Adams and her 12 children are in a much better place after Nick Cox, who is the regional director of the Department of Children and Families, got involved. He found a temporary home at a kid's place in Brandon for the family. DCF says they will sit down with Adams and a team of case management workers to determine the best way to move forward to help her What's this about rules for pa's and sons? This first. Hmm. The 75-cent rule. The 75-cent rule. I don't, uh, I don't believe I ever heard of that. Well, that's what I figured. Hmm. What it is, Pa, is that nowadays kids get 75 cents a week allowance instead of 25 cents. 75 cents? That's a lot of money. And in a year's time, I'd come to see as 52 weeks in a year. It comes to around $40 a year. <laughs> That's an awful lot of money for a young. They get it, Pa. They do, huh? And they don't have to work for it like I do. Hmm. Well, who is this, uh, this day you keep talking about? Oh, Arnold Winkler and everybody. Arnold Winkler. I don't believe I know him, do I? They're new from Raleigh. Oh, I see. And, and the Raleigh rules say, uh, say 75 cents and no work, huh? I guess. Mm -hmm. You want it straight, don't you? Mm-hmm. Okay, here it goes. There are no rules for pa's and sons. Uh, it's as simple as this. Each uh, each mother or father raises his boy or girl, as the case may be, the way that uh, he thinks is best. And I think it's best for you to give a quarter and work for it. You see, when you give something, in this instance, clean the garage, and you get something in return, like a quarter, well, that's the greatest feeling in the world. You do feel good after working, don't you? Uh-huh. Good and tired. <laughs> well, as uh, as you get bigger, well, you'll be doing more and more work for more and more return, and that good feeling will get bigger. Do you understand what I mean? I think so. Good. I'm not going to get the 75 cents. <laughs> and I have to work for the 25. Right. It's all clear to you? Yeah. The bigger you get, the tireder you get. <laughs> well, uh... You just, you just think about that for a while. Do I have to? Don't you want to think about it? It makes me kind of sad. <laughs>
Well, the thing to do when you're feeling sad is to shoot for the good feeling. Clean the garage. Right. Swan Paul. <laughs> You know, whole books have been written about today's generation, titles like Generation Me. In other words, it all revolves around me. Somehow I am now the center of the universe. I am special and I am entitled. Now look, human beings have always been self-centered. It's part of the nature of sin, selfishness. And probably each generation looks at the last generation and, you know, and the next generation, well, you're more selfish and things like that. But, but studies have been done, large studies with tens of thousands of people participating, in, and they've pointed out that there is something different about this current generation. There is more of a feeling that the world revolves around me, therefore generation me, and more of this entitlement mentality somehow Society owes things to me. Society owes me a better life. Well, there's an episode on the Andy Griffith Show with all of the innocence of that show that that kind of speaks to us today. It's about a spoiled child. Here's this this new kid who becomes friends with Andy Griffith's son. Uh, Check this out. Hey, you got your new Intercontinental Flyer, huh? Uh Uh-huh. Yesterday. Boy, it's a beauty. Hop on the rack and I'll give you a ride. I can't. i got to get this garage cleaned up. Who says? My pa. What happens if you don't? I don't get my quarter this week. A quarter? For a job like this? Oh, no. Besides this, I take out the ashes, keep the wood box filled, and set the table every night. Oh, boy. Did your old man see you coming? (laughs) What do you mean? He's taking advantage of you. I don't know what you're talking about. They owe it to you. You're not supposed to work for your allowance. What do you think allowance means? I don't know. It means money the kid is allowed to have. Oh? And without working for it. It's for being a kid. Are you sure? Seems to me my pa would have told me if that's so. They figure what they don't tell you it won't hurt you. Not my pa. He tells me everything straight. Okay, so I'm wrong. But who's cleaning a garage for a quarter? And who's riding a $70 bike? Wait a minute, Arnold. What do you mean? I told you, kids aren't supposed to work for their allowance. My pa is awful busy. Maybe he hasn't heard this new stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, this says it all. It's owed to you because you're a kid. Society owes it to you. Your dad owes it to you. You, you know, in the Garden of Eden, when, when Eve sinned and then Adam sinned, God says to, to the man, what did you do? And he says, well, well, the woman, you, you put her in the garden with me. She, I, I didn't ask for companions. It's all, it's all on you. It's your fault. It's your fault. And then he says to the woman, what did you do? She says, it's the snake. It was the snake. It wasn't me. It was the snake. You, I don't, after all, you put him in the garden. You put that deceiver in the garden. It's, it's on you. That's the one side of the blame game. I'm not responsible. Somebody else's fault. The other side of the blame game is... I'm not responsible. Someone else is supposed to improve the quality of my life. And this whole idea of, look, everybody has to overcome obstacles. Everybody has something against them. Everybody has something they have to overcome. Everybody has to turn a stumbling block into a stepping stone. No, no, no. That's the opposite of the entitlement mentality. I have it coming to me. And if I don't get my way, 
I'm going to throw a tantrum. Well, that's exactly what happens on Andy Griffith. Check this out. Talking is a waste of time. You have to take action. Action? Sure. What kind of action? Temper tantrums. Why? To scare them. Shake them up a little bit. Have you ever held your breath? Swimming under the raft? No. I mean at home. To get something you want. Sounds kind of spiteful. Listen, it works. Your face gets kind of red, and your jaws get tight, and oh boy, do they get scared. They think you're going to get seriously sick, or maybe even bust a vessel. Gee. Oh yeah, there's all kinds of them. Kicking a table leg, uh, rolling around on the floor, kicking your feet, pretending you can't stop crying. Gosh, I don't know. Oh, for crying out loud, Taylor. <laughs> Hey, Arnold. Take it easy, Arnold. I didn't mean to say nothing wrong. I'm sorry, Arnold. I'm sorry. Get the idea? <laughs> and it works? Every time. <laughs> Now, of course, at the end of the show, the whole thing turns around. This this kid gets exposed as being spoiled. The the father has a change of heart, and of course, Andy Andy Griffith stays strong the whole way through. But what we have right now is is a bunch of spoiled children. You know, there are there are schools now, children's schools, where when they have sports competitions, they don't keep track of the score because everybody is a winner. Everybody wins. It's too hard to lose. It's too discouraging to lose. Can I tell you, in real life, some people win some days and other people lose some days, and that's the way it is, and we have to learn to deal with it and grow from it. Oh, today, we can't. You're in a college campus. This happened at a a campus in North Carolina. You say the words, you know, have a nice Christmas holiday. That's a microaggression. That's a microaggression. That, effect, that, that means that everybody celebrates Christmas and you're not considering other people. If you tell uh, a, a woman, hey, that's a nice outfit you have. You look really nice. Oh, oh that is belittling, belittling her, her dignity and worth as a woman and what she has to offer. And, and if you say, hey, why don't we play a round of golf? Oh, that's another microaggression because what if the person can't afford it? You're insulting them. What am I saying? The world revolves around me. And if I don't like the way this feels, then I am going to protest. That, friends, is what we are dealing with today. The entitlement mentality, the world revolves around me mentality. And if I don't get my way, I'm going to throw a tantrum. It didn't work then. It's not going to work today. You know the solution? Take responsibility. Nobody owes you a free lunch. All right, today's podcast is titled The $18 Billion Blazing Business Model. Last three number 619-7682. Oh, wait a minute. I wrote the wrong number. <laughs> All right. Uh, 619-768-2945. I got to go back and change my number. Um, that's the regular number. Yeah, six one nine seven six eight two nine four five. I wrote it incorrectly on on um was probably a bunch of people calling me and I gotta correct that. But in any event, that's the title of today's podcast. We start the podcast over the audio uh on a story about Angel Adams, a woman in Tampa the Tampa Bay area has fifteen, sixteen children. 
And during a news interview, she said that somebody, and she was living in a hotel room, mind you, with 15, 16 kids. Uh, somebody needs to be held accountable for her children. Then we moved uh, and played a clip, um, uh, two clips from the Andy Griffith show, um, but you're going to play one more clip from that same episode because I think the this story, this particular story from Andy Griffith gave a, gave a good fundamental uh, dramatization of entitlement and a victim attitude. They typically go. They typically go together. And the reason why I'm playing these first, before we get into the 18 million dollar blazing business model, you got to get rid of that if you have it, because not all people have. It. Okay. Um. You might not have it, but you might be considering a business partner. You don't want to have a business partner who has an entitlement attitude. So I'm going to play this next clip from Andy Griffith's show, and it gives you it, – it's from the same episode we just played, but it, it, it gives – it plays it all the way out to the end where you find out what happens to the entitled – Things to do. 
<laughs> what are you doing? I was holding my breath. Good long exercise. <laughs> Don't get your clothes all dirty. <laughs> Sheriff? Yes, sir. You the boy's father? That's right. Simon Winkler. Andy Taylor. Now then, what's this all about? 249A, section Roman numeral 5. All right, so he rode his bike on the sidewalk. Arnold was given a warning and continued to ride his bicycle on the sidewalk. The offense was clearly defined under normal weather conditions. Everybody's a Was it such a crime? Now, if we don't teach children to live in society today, what's going to happen to them when they grow up? For heaven's sake, Sheriff, the boy's not a criminal. The minimum punishment for this offense is impounding the bicycle for one year. Well, you can't do it. I demand you return that bike and now. Now, you look here. You're that boy's father. You're responsible for his actions. Now, he's too young to be locked up. But if you're not going to take responsibility, maybe I ought to lock you up. You ever think of that? Go on. Put him in jail. He won't care. You'd rather I put your father in jail. I want my bike! <laughs> Sheriff, there won't be any need to impound that bike. How's that? I'm gonna sell it. Sell it? You're gonna sell my bike? That's right, Arnold. Quiet, Arnold. <laughs> Mr. Winkler, there's a real nice woodshed out back. Good old-fashioned woodshed? Real nice one. No, I want my bike! I want my bike! <laughs> I want my bike! <laughs> Is Arnie gonna get spanked, Paul? Don't you think he deserves it? I don't want to say. After all, he is one of my own kind. <laughs> Hi, Paul. Hi, son. I was wondering if by any chance you might need a person to clean the garage and do odd jobs around. There happens to be a recent vacancy in that department. Oh, boy! 25 cents a week, okay? Sounds fine to me, Paul. Good. Oh. Yeah, Paul? Uh, suppose we make that, uh, 27 cents a week. That's a dollar more a year. Yeah. What you gonna do with all your money? Save up for a bell. A bell? Uh-huh. Then save up for a bike to put under it. You know, whole books have been written about today's generation. Titles like... What's this about rules for pa's and sons? Okay, I had another audio of him. But anyway, that that last audio, uh, uh, like I say, that, that particular episode of Andy Griffith, uh, where, uh, in my opinion, um, did a very good illustration on fundamental uh, entitlement attitude and, you know, the using victimhood strategies and techniques and tactics trying to get your way. I also thought about that uh matter of fact we'll do another podcast on it. But I thought um 
I, 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 I was thinking that whole time during that, that, that playback on that uh, about the uh, Philadelphia Starbucks thing. But that's another podcast another day. Anyway, today's podcast, once again, is titled The $18 Billion Blazing Business Model. So uh, we're going to get into what that is right now. Uh, but I wanted to set the stage because to tap in on this $18 billion market, you basically can't have an entitlement, cannot have an entitlement attitude. Now, blazing is basically a combination of two words, black and Asian. Black folks, as we've heard, uh, some black folks, as we've heard on here, um, right after slavery, started their own, matter of fact, even before slavery, during colonial times, um, have set up various black townships. They were called different things at different times. At one time, they were called Negro towns, uh, you know, Negro settlements, whatever. But um, the townships, villages that black folks have set up in the Western Hemisphere. I talk about mostly here in the United States, but it's Western, I mean, from Canada on down to, I've, I've discovered them all the way down to Brazil so far, but I'm sure in Argentina, uh, if I, you know, once I get into that country, you probably got examples of black townships and those, those places too. But we're talking about from way back. Uh, and you can start your own town right now if you want to, but that, that topic is another podcast. But anyway, the $18 billion Blasian uh, business model. So Blasian, the BL is for black, and, of course, the Asian is Asian. Mix the two together, Blasian is not a new word. Um, now, the two, the thing that they have in common, you have black folks that have set up their townships. Those townships, most the ones that I've discovered so far, uh, and personally have set foot in, are basically residential townships. Some might even call them bedroom communities. Um, the ones that I've run across typically, except for Eatonville so far, typically do not have any commercial businesses in these locations. They might have churches, um, but they might, you know, no no industry there at all. China, um, Asians, because you got the Chinese, the Koreans, the Vietnamese, you have various Asian enclaves uh, who have set up what is known as Chinatown. Now, most Chinatowns are pure Chinatowns. There are some, I mean, as far as Chinese people living in them and working in them, they're merchant-based communities. Well, I'm going to say merchant-based. You do have quite a few that do live in those communities, but they're typically in urban areas, urbanized areas. All right? So I want to merge the two, whereas so is the, the, the black townships, particularly new ones that spring up, or existing ones, uh, if you want to bring in more people, just, you know, take a page out of the uh, the Chinatown, the Vietnam town, the Vietnamese town, Laos town, 
um, Korean town, take a page out of their communities and monetize or commercialize, bring in businesses into your residential communities. Because many of these black townships, once again, the ones that I've set foot in, um, are 100 plus years old, over 100 years old. There are some new ones. And I imagine as I speak, you know, there are people that are buying land and, and, you know, putting their own communities together. Next thing is this that they have in common, historically speaking, and probably even that. The black townships were basically started by individual households. There might be a man and a wife or a few close-knit relatives and some friends, maybe less than five people, no more than four or five people, or less, definitely less than ten. And they would that's how they would start a township. That's with a handful of people. Um, and if you look at most China, uh, well, most Chinese restaurants are essentially mom and pop operations of family based business. Even the liquor stores that they have, uh, the family works in it. All right. So forget about the idea of trying to get all black folks to get together. They're not doing that. Okay. Stick with a small group of people, maybe just with your family or friends, and I might be one or two people, more like one than two, and keep it small. Get it off the ground, and then basically numerically keep it small as well. So uh, that's thus, it's $18 billion. Now, Chinese, I mean, Asian Americans, do 41, uh, excuse me, $18 billion plus with 41,000 plus locations right now. Now, here's the other thing that they've done, the Asians. They set up in food deserts. Now, let me give this two distinctions with food deserts. On a commercial land, they set up shops a carry-out, a restaurant, what have you, and locations that didn't have any type of ethnic food, particularly Asian-based ethnic food. Now, like right where I'm at, there's um, like they're two to five miles apart, right in the neck of the woods where I'm at right now. So, um, and before they were there, there was no ethnic type food, particularly of, you know, Asian. So, they were looking for commercial food deserts. Now, they're also residential food deserts. A food desert is, is essential, and we're going to play some audio that in a moment, so. Is a, I think it's divine, fine is a place that uh, it's a food desert. If you can't, if there's no store within a one-mile radius of where you are where you can go buy fresh fruits and vegetables. We're not talking about processed foods, but we're talking about fresh fruits and vegetables. 
If you got to travel one mile plus, you're in a food desert. On Facebook, on our Facebook page, our Facebook page is um, Earth Wealth Energy Village. That's our Facebook page, Earth Wealth Energy Village. I've got three maps on there. I also have it on Blog Talk, too, in the scrolling marquee. On Facebook, on our Facebook page, and you just go to on Facebook, Earth Wealth Energy Village, I got three maps. One map is, well, actually two of the maps are, well, two of the maps are maps of food deserts in the United States. And they're all over the place. Then there's another map of guns, gun shops, and grocery stores. In some areas of the United States, you have more gun stores than places to buy fresh fruits and vegetables, or any food at all. So then other map is uh, another, uh, you know, cartography interpretation of, uh, or indicator of um, food deserts. So you go to our Facebook page, Earth Wealth, Energy Village, and those three maps are there, uh, right right near the top of that Facebook page. All right, now, so there's quite a few, uh, and you don't have to go into a black township, because in the United States, there's scores of towns, villages, small places, and neighborhoods in urban cities that are food deserts. The Asians that have come into this country and developed their mar- their market niche into eighteen billion plus dollars yearly for at least the, uh they they've been doing it for at least one hundred and forty five years in this country they've always survived despite the legislation that was against them. They've always looked for a food desert, and they prospered. So all I'm saying is, and that's why I titled this podcast today, the $18 billion Belgian business model. You can take a page out of the black towns. You can take a page out of the uh, uh, Asian Chinese food restaurant community, merge those two together. And there's probably another $18 billion, if not $36 billion plus there right now, totally untapped. That's what I call taking a page from last week, one of last week's podcasts, reparations within plain sight. But you you won't get it. You won't recognize it if you have a victim mindset. All right. Let's uh, get into the um, food deserts. Uh, right now. Welcome back to the now. If you happen to live in any of these spots that are green on this map, the USDA says you are living in a food desert. No easy access to fresh food. And it, of course, it doesn't help that dozens of Hagen and Fresh and Easy stores just closed. A new survey shows that millions of Americans are dealing with this, and we didn't have to go too far to find them. I went online. Searching for grocery stores by phone. 1.7 miles away, eight minutes from here. Is that the closest grocery store? The one that I know of, yes. Brianna McCallum is out walking her dog. 
but walking to a grocery store in this Encanto neighborhood 3.7 miles. That's more of a challenge. Yeah, when I moved in the area, that was kind of the one of the issues for me. It's also an issue for Zolotta Levine, who happened to drive up as we were talking to Brianna. In Brooklyn, New York, you have stores on every corner where you can get what you need, but here they don't have stores on every corner, I noticed. Zolotta says she finds herself driving miles every day to the grocery store to feed her growing boys, David and Devin. She lives in an area which the USDA calls a food desert. That means the nearest store selling affordable fruits and vegetables is at least a mile away. And for people in rural areas, it could be 10 miles away. You either have to have a vehicle or you got to slap it on the trolley and it's just a pain in the butt. <laughs> a study by the Associated Press finds that 10,000 new stores have opened up in the last five years, but many are convenience or dollar stores. Only 250 actually sell fresh food. You can't find everything in these small stores, and if you do find stuff, they, they make the prices outrageous. This topic on social media, you will see a lot of people are skeptical of the, the notion of food deserts. They think the problem is exaggerate. But research has shown that not being able to buy fresh food does lead to health problems like obesity, like diabetes, because, of course, you end up eating processed food or fast food instead. And we do have a link to the food desert map on 10news.com. Just click on the red TV. African-American women have the highest rate of being overweight or obese more than any other group in the U.S. In fact, African-American women are 70% more likely to be obese than non-Hispanic white women. And it's no surprise that poverty plays a big role in this health disparity. People in low-income neighborhoods are more likely to live in so-called food deserts, neighborhoods with limited access to large grocery stores that sell fresh produce. Instead, there's a proliferation of fast food restaurants and corner stores with lots of cheap junk food. 25% of Cuyahoga County residents live in food deserts. In our next story, we meet Nikki Collins, who gives us a taste of what it's like to be poor, live near a food desert, and against those odds, still try to feed her large family healthy meals. So, we, so all we could do was to... What did you do with my, um, this rank? I'm a homemaker. I, I consider myself to be a homemaker, and this is my job as, as a parent to raise my kids. I try to keep my kitchen clean, keeping the dishes together, and like I said, they, they come in and they, it's a hustle and bustle trying to get them a snack. You got practice? Where you get that from? You got a game now, Nikki, her husband, and their six children live in a public housing apartment complex on Cleveland's Near East Side. There you go. And I'm on welfare. We survive on food stamps. Usually, I try to keep up with all of the meals that I want to make. Like today is the 15th. I'll count down because I get my stamps like in the next month. How many days I have? It's heartbreaking to me. It really is heartbreaking because of me trying to look like at the end of the month, my kids, they are hungry. They want a snack. But I don't have that all the time. And it, it really hurts my feelings not to have that all the time because they'll be hungry, you know, and they need that energy. There's another snack that I'm fixing, but I still stretch it out to the point where all of us can eat. I still have to go to food centers sometimes to fill up my pantry. Usually when I make a meal, I'll 
minimize my meat, but everybody gets a piece. Like say, a little bit of um, stew beef can go a long way. We can eat all of this rice in one month. And this is like a 10 pound bag. And this is what I buy every month. So this is what we'll eat. This is my meal filler. The family doesn't own a car. Once a month, Nikki gets a ride to a large wholesale grocery store where she buys things in bulk. She says sometimes people give her looks for buying so much. And then they'll look at my weight and see, you know, how, and I'll see the look on their face, and it kind of makes me upset because I know I'm a little bit overweight for my height, and, you know, but it's like, well, you don't know the story, so how can you judge? Like, how can you look with a judge on your face? The truth is people who live in poor neighborhoods are more likely to be obese than those from higher income areas. One reason stems from the fact many low-income neighborhoods lack safe, accessible places to exercise. Food deserts are another issue. The term refers to poor access to fresh and healthy food. Nikki lives on the edge of one. If you live in a food desert and you're hungry, the closest place to eat is often a fast food restaurant or convenience store. So we're going to see exactly what one of these little neighborhood grocery stores has inside. We got a lot of noodles, easy stuff, fast stuff to prepare. Some of the kids around here, they're eating um, the TV dinners and they're eating oodles of noodles and they're eating a whole lot of junk food. But it's still a matter of knowledge on how and what to eat. What nutritional things can we buy that are cheap and that we can use? And so the recipes that you're learning in class today, they're helpful, they're tasty, and are they quick? They're quick. Here's where Pat Legrand comes in. She's a chef and registered dietitian who grew up in Harlem, New York. She knows what it's like to be poor. Chef Pat is teaching a healthy cooking class for public housing residents in a pilot project. It involves Case Western Reserve University, the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority, and the Ohio State University Extension. You have to start educating people, teaching them to read a food label, uh, teaching them that they're even on a limited budget, there are ways to embrace a healthier lifestyle. You make it real, you make it livable, when you can smell it, taste it, see it, feel it. We have to relearn and, and retrain ourselves for a healthier lifestyle. That's her bowl. She, she want rice. A couple years ago, Nikki took a nutrition class and she tries to apply what she's learned. I don't do the canned vegetables because it's got a lot of sodium. Frozen is my best bet. That's my closest thing to fresh vegetables. That's your rice and your cream of mushroom. Life remains a struggle, but Nikki's trying to do the best she can for her kids. I hope that they grow up to be respectable, well-rounded people, let alone well-nourished. Cute kids there. I'm here with Dr. Carla Harwell, Medical Director of University Hospital's Otis Moss Junior Health Center. Dr. Harwell, you treat a lot of low-income patients right in the middle of one of these so-called food deserts. Absolutely. Yes, my practice is in the Fairfax community, mm -hmm. which is primarily African-American and lower-income uh, individuals. 
We saw the point there that many people in neighborhoods like Fairfax and other parts of Cleveland and the country do suffer because of the food desert system, the way it's put together, the way that they don't have food to go to. And it does lead to obesity. It does. I mean, when you don't have access to the healthier foods and the things that could really make a difference in your choices in terms of what you, you know, how you prepare your meals, then that's a problem if you don't have access to that. It's really a struggle for people like Nikki trying to do the right thing. Right, and she is. She's trying to do the right thing. She's making some healthy choices. You know, she's picking frozen vegetables over cans. I mean, there are some substitutions. There's some little things that you can do, but when you're on a fixed income and, you know, you're in a, a food desert, I mean, the choices become hard. There may be people watching who are saying, you know, until now I hadn't heard this phrase. Why is there this concentration of area without food? Well, you know, it's, it's really sad. I mean, it's, it's sad when you're, you know, you're in a neighborhood that you don't have access to, to healthy, fresh fruits, um, even in terms of tackling obesity. You know, if you want to exercise, you may live in an area that, you know, have a high crime rate, you know, and there's no place for you to walk or there's no greenery. So a lot of things contribute to this. And when we, when we use the term, you know, food desert, you know, we are talking about access to, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables and healthier uh, food choices. But we also have to look at the big picture. It's not just the fact that, you know, you're in a food desert, but if you look at the big picture, your neighborhood also contributes to, you know, how likely you are, you know, to feel safe to even be able to go out and exercise. Not that anyone accepts the idea of obesity, but because they're in a desert like this, they may see more obesity around them. Does it become a culturally acceptable situation? Well, you know, there's a phrase, they'll be what they see. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes if that's all you see, if that's all, you know, and, and you're told that, not necessarily that it's okay, but it seems, it seems to be okay because that's mm -hmm. all you see. So, you know, they'll, they'll be what they see. You mentioned the fact that it's dangerous to walk in some areas or people mm -hmm. may perceive it that way. Mm -hmm. Lack of exercise has to be as big a contributor here as the lack of fruits and vegetables. Absolutely. I mean, you know, any, any successful diet has two parts to it. You know, it's, it's the food choices that you make and then it's also being able to exercise. Now, while it's true that, you know, you can exercise sometimes in the comfort of your own home, but if you want to get out and walk, you know, um, and you're in a neighborhood where that's not safe to do, then you're not going to do it if you don't feel safe. Okay, we've scared people enough here. Mm -hmm. We saw the one class that was helping from CMHA in Ohio State. Mm -hmm. What are other things that you tell people who you come in contact with who have the situation that they can do for themselves? Well, like Nikki was doing, you know, I try to teach them that there are some substitutions and some choices that you can make. Um, you know, try to steer away from, you know, the, the, the foods that are high in carbs and, and the starches. Although, you know, when you're on a fixed budget, you know, a five-pound bag of potatoes can go a long way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we just try to show how, you know, it's okay to eat French fries. You know, it's okay to eat hamburgers and hot dogs, but everything is in moderation. And so what I try to teach is that when you're on a fixed income and your choices aren't what, you know, you'd like them to be. If, you're, if, you're, if you live near a food desert, you know, you just have to try to make the best choices that you can make within the, you know, the, the constraints of what you have to deal with monetarily. We saw Kay Colby walk into the store there and it was just lines and lines of Doritos and other similar type foods. Mm -hmm. Is there a way that those of you in the health industry can say to the convenience stores, can you give us a little bit of space <laughs> on the end here? Can you try and help? Well, I mean, you know, that's hard, you know, and I even look at fast foods, you know. I mean, if you can go to a fast food place and get two burgers for, you know, $2, but you want to eat a salad, well, the salad costs $5. 
you know, so what are you going to do? You know, you get two for two, you know, two for two or, you know, try to pick something healthier. So, I mean, it's not just the convenience stores. I mean, it's, it's really our whole society. You know, it's the whole fast food industry. I mean, uh, Plates and portion sizes are so much larger in, in restaurants. I mean, everything has just been, you know, blown up, and, and that's what we tend to eat. And so, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's, I think this is a, a national uh, problem, not just, you know, an individual neighborhood issue. I mean, th this is everywhere. And lastly, Cleveland, one of the national leaders in community gardens. Is that a great start? That is a great start. I mean, when you can go to a community and engage a community to become active participants in trying to grow, you know, some of these healthy vegetables so that you can be able to make better food choices. I mean, we need to, we need to have more of those. Dr. Carla Harwell, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. In this program, we've pulled back the many layers of obesity to help you better understand the problem, why it's an epidemic, and what you and your family can do to fight against fat. We looked at the CDC's so-called fat maps to better understand the origins of the obesity epidemic. We heard from Randy, his unforgettable experience at Cedar Point, and how the typical American lifestyle of bad eating habits and no exercise can sneak up on you. We learned that fat is not in the eye of the beholder, but rather in a simple mathematical formula called BMI that was created in 1835 by a Belgian statistician. Rosie's story revealed that the war against weight can sometimes involve our own DNA as well as long-held family traditions that are often hard to break. Stress is a major contributor to the obesity epidemic. David's story showed how prolonged stress can cause your body to unleash a hormone that increases your appetite. And Nikki showed us how being poor and living near a food desert makes eating healthy meals much more complicated and challenging. We want to thank all the people who shared their stories and the medical experts who provided their depth and insights. One final reminder to visit our website at health.ideastream.org for a list of resources, more stories, and no or low-cost ways you and your family can lead healthier lives. You will also find a link to our partner, Net Wellness, a consumer information website from Case Western Reserve University, The Ohio State University, and the University of Cincinnati. For all my colleagues here at IdeaStream, I'm Rick Jackson. Thanks so much for watching and be well. Fresh Truck is a mobile, healthy food market. Uh, we're serving Boston communities with a range of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, um, and a range of other healthy food options with the ambition of improving community health by improving access to healthy food options across neighborhoods specifically that don't have access to supermarket grocery stores. Came up with the idea for Fresh Truck while I was working at the Charlestown MGH Healthcare Center um, for a group called the Fitzgerald Sports Institute. And uh, I was doing work to implement a curriculum that helped families develop uh, different strategies for maintaining a healthy lifestyle in the household. And it was great. Parents came back and said that they learned a lot, but that it was still hard to shop for healthy food on a regular basis. It's been a, it's been a great community of support around the city. And then we had a great group, Boston Restoration Services. It's a group out of Dorchester. Um, they specialize in building restaurants and a range of other establishments around the city. Uh, and they came on and they retrofitted the entire bus for free. So. We're kind of married to them. They're a great group. You know, they're heavily involved in this business as well as Mako too. They painted the bus for free. Oh.
Thank you. We're excited about it. What we're ultimately looking to do is to partner with groups that are doing work around health literacy to provide them with a solution to healthy food options and really, too, to just improve uh, access to healthy food options and build a better community around food and health uh, in the city. residents who live in food deserts of the city that are distant from grocery stores or supermarkets are now able to obtain fresh produce from a modified city bus that offers locally grown fruits and vegetables twice a week. It's known as Fresh to You, a partnership between the city of Little Rock, Arkansas Hunger Relief Alliance, Mosaic Church, and an organization of produce farmers called Raising Arkansas. The groups have come together to make it more convenient for residents not near supermarkets to purchase fresh produce. The pilot project is an outgrowth of the Mosaic Church's Vine and Village Ministry, which provides food and meals for those in the University District of the city. Right now we're in the middle of really a pilot program with this, and so we're again grateful for Mayor Stodel just having confidence in us and giving us access to this bus, as you say, that we retrofitted and that we're able to turn into this mobile market so we're available on Tuesday at a variety of locations here in the city and then on Saturday our focus is what we call food deserts it's places that don't have ready access to fresh fruit and vegetables and so we want to service them first. The produce is grown by a group of farmers who have formed Raising Arkansas. Johnny Pettis is president and says this project provides an important market for the farmers. It's a blessing, give God the glory, to partnership with the Hunger Release Alliance and to thank Kathy Webb to uh, identify Raising Arkansas, one of the market to uh, uh, the vendor over the bus program. So uh, the bus, as we travel throughout Arkansas in certain zip codes at the present time, it give a, uh, a market, a, 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 you know, an everyday market on Tuesdays and Saturdays for our, some of our growers. Through the help and the taking the support of the University of Arkansas, we're able to grow year-round, so we're growing indoors and uh, working with our growers and with some technical support to uh, be able to grow year-round, so it's a continuous. James Jackson is a resident of Paris Towers, one of the regular stops for the bus. He says this provides an important service for many of his neighbors. You got people in wheelchairs, you know, uh, don't have vehicles that have to walk, and you got older elderly people, you know, this is convenient. Trust me when I tell you, they should not only have this one, but they should have others. It's a lot cheaper and the vegetables are fresh. All of it is fresh and they give you a good deal on it. And the people are kind. They take their time out to come into our neighborhood and, and bring fresh produce and you just don't see that every day. The relationship between the Hunger Relief Alliance and farmers is one reason the program has been successful. We're very fond of, of Johnny and the farmers in this collective. One of the Alliance uh, staff members is on the board, and it was really important to us that we work with local farmers, and I think it's wonderful that Raising Arkansas is trying to get more uh, African-American young men involved in farming, and also they're doing a lot of outreach now with Hispanic uh, farmers. And I would love to see a fleet of buses going all over the state. I think that would be really exciting. We've got a lot of food deserts all across Arkansas, and we've got a lot of farmers who are growing produce. And it would be wonderful to marry those two and make it a win-win for everybody in the state. 
All right, now we got another audio about mobile food, uh, food, uh, mobile grocery stores, mobile grocery stores, um, which is uh, it's, it's, it's in the pioneer phase. Uh, we'll be back after this public service announcement from James Brown. Nothing. 
Here in Northern Vermont, in the Northeast Kingdom, we have a wonderful diversity of local farms. But the challenge for many is access to that local food. Many folks live 30 minutes, 45 minutes away from a grocery store, but access can also be income level. The Northeast Kingdom has, has the highest rates of poverty in Vermont. Over 18% of families struggle um, with poverty, which is nearly uh, double the statewide average. Over 30% of children are obese or overweight, which is well above the statewide average. So the mission of the Lunchbox Mobile Farmers Market is to bring good, fresh, healthy local food to where people are in our community. We want to make sure that all Vermonters have access to healthy food. I am making chili with pork tenderloin from my friend Jason's farm and some local beefalo. And we're supporting local farmers. They may not have enough extra produce to market their own produce at a farmer's market, but they may have a surplus that they're not selling at their farm, and the mobile farmer's market is a great outlet for them to reach new markets that they might not be reaching otherwise. We work with, I'm going to say it's about 10 farmers. New produce farmers and smaller produce farmers, people with like four to five acres. There's a lot of farmers growing food because they want to feed people. And farmers are like poets in that way. You know, there's so many farmers who they're not in it for money, but there's a lot of like social responsibility and consciousness amongst farmers and I think that's why so many of them want to be involved in the lunchbox. I am Farks in Newport. This is our first regular market in Newport open to the public. I don't know who to expect to see tonight. We have the pilot light on. I am serving a bean and cheese taco with salsa and a little slaw on the side. Okay, we're open. We're open. We made it. What can I get for you? Do you want it like how we make it at home with hamburgers? Yeah. The taco combo. What is that? One or two tacos? Um, it's two tacos. No, I'll take one of each. Send it. Alright. Try it. Mm. We do a farmer's market on the outside. 
We want the table to function almost like a grocery store for people where people can get their staples. We have eggs. We've got Morningstar Meadows beans and Butterwork flour. Some farms, I would say this is their major farmer's market. Thank you. So in that way we act as like a retail agent. We've got a couple coolers full of greens here. We buy up front from all of the farmers, so no farmer takes a hit if we don't sell it. The lunchbox takes the hit. Well, it's important for me to participate in a program like this because I want to promote our farm, get people interested in coming to us. And it, I think it's really important for communities to be able to know where their food's produced. You know, we want to be able to grow stuff and, and provide it locally so that it's not being trucked across from California. It's a lot easier just to go into the grocery store and say, oh, well, here we've got a uh, you know, bunch of this and a bunch of that. But if you knew that you could get this and that right around the corner in Barton or in Irisburg or in Newport, you might be more apt to go and get it there. I love good food. <laughs> glad I moved up here. I moved here about three years ago from West Virginia. They didn't have a big local food movement, so I would have to drive maybe 80 miles to get to a really good farmer's market. But here, if you're a senior citizen or if you're living in an apartment in Newport, this gives me access to all kinds of good things. So I brought the truck over. Do you want to check it out? It's like a healthy cookie. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's good for us. That's great. It does have a peanut butter taste. Yeah. There's going to be $15 worth of coupons that you can spend at the lunchbox. And you can buy anything you want. Okay. Cookies. Limit limit of two cookies for you though, I think. <laughs> limit of two cookies. <laughs> a lot of people can't get to the flea market, the farmers markets and things. You go to them. You know, if you need me to make a round up here and you start hearing that, you know, people oh I'd go if only we're up in the parking lot, I'll come up to the parking lot. And I did send out word to all the people that are on WIC, so hopefully we do get some today. Okay. And I'll have a sign so they can just get their coupons in there and come out here and spend them. Are you Bethany? Um, I'm Bethany Bond. Our farm is Bloomingfield Farm. We're in Bloomfield, Vermont, up here in the corner of the Northeast Kingdom. It's a mobile food truck that's aimed at just kind of making things accessible. It's something that's really needed in this part of the state. I think it's a great idea. Right now, we really want to make healthy vegetables available, um, accessible to a lot of people. Um, we're not making any money, uh, that's for sure. But we really just want to see people around us eating good food at least having the access to good food. Let's face it, it's hard to put good food on the table. Oh, I have a napkin. <laughs> I usually use my pants. <laughs> We're very cut off from uh, the rest of society here in so many ways. To get to farmer's markets, we either have to go to St. Johnsbury or to Newport, which are both an hour drive away. That's why this lunchbox thing is a really good thing because it brings the produce to us. 
and we live uh, about nine miles outside of town. I can't say enough about supporting farmers. I mean, I don't want all my food coming from processed foods. I don't want businesses deciding what goes into my body. Because as you see, it's a temple. <laughs> a rather large temple, but a temple nonetheless. I bought rhubarb, romaine, radishes. This cost $8. I used $6 in coupons, which help people who are on food stamps be able to purchase more fresh fruits versus all the processed stuff. It's more beneficial for the community because then it helps smaller businesses flourish versus the big businesses where we don't know where the money goes. I think when we are really successful it's when we build relationships with people and they're excited about not just coming to get food but coming to hang out with their neighbors. Sustainability doesn't come in like a big shiny truck. I mean, we need to know each other and then take care of one another and grow our own food and feed each other. And I think that's sustainable. My own parents, they look at the farmer's market as something that's like upper class or hoity-toity or... And that shouldn't be. And we're not that many generations past where everybody had gardens. You want to try it? And so if we can connect it back as soon as possible, then we can have kids who have memories of eating from the garden and eating fresh food because fresh food just belongs to people. Mm. That's good. That's really good. All right. So that that's um, an emerging market here in the United States. Farmers on Wheels, uh, grocery store, mobile grocery stores. I'm sure somebody has an app or is developing an app, and there'll be there'll be an Uber of grocery store apps uh, popping up on the horizon. Uh, but these food deserts, like I say, that that's um, it's a wide open market. Like I said, if you go to our Facebook page, Earth, uh, Earth Wealth Energy Village, I've got three maps on there of uh, uh, food desert locations in the United States. If you go to the USDA's website uh, and to their uh, food, you know, they've they got the same map uh, of food deserts. Um, and once again, a food desert by definition, according to the FDA, is a place uh, that's at least one, if you're in a location and the closest place that you can get and have to travel to is like a mile away, a mile a mile radius, then you're in a food desert. So there's scores of them in the United States. Um, and there are food deserts right within uh, many urban areas as well. So uh, in rural areas, it could be more. But uh, mobile food stores, um, people coming up with apps who don't grow anything, <laughs> but uh, they develop the app. Because like Uber, the guys who came up with Uber, which is an app, they don't, they don't drive anybody anyplace. Uh, Airbnb, same thing. Airbnb is an app for people who, you know, that want to, you know, rent their places up. So uh, that's the 18 billion, what we call the 18 billion plus market uh, where Asian Americans have, um, well, they're taking $18 billion plus now. So all we're saying is if you're looking for a business opportunity in the African American community, there are several black towns but it doesn't have to be a black town. 
It can be any town or combinations, towns, and neighborhoods that have food deserts. You can put together the app. Um, you can retro. I mean, it's an industry here. App development, retrofitting um, buses uh, so they can be grocery stores on wheels. Um, training drivers. Um, I, like I said, it's a cottage. It's more than the cottage industry. It, it's it's an industry that um, you can really take advantage of uh, right now because it's in the um, what do you call it the uh, what I consider the pioneer phase. Uh, let's see. On that note, we're gonna. End it with zero victims. Victim mentality, even in the United States of America, is something that's been institutionalized. I could spend a lot of time talking to you about the culture in terms of how victim and think victim thinking has been ingrained into American culture. Listen, victims of injustice, I say here file an estimated 15 million civil lawsuits in America every year one of the most litigious societies in the history of the world because we're a nation of victims. Somebody did something to me, we sue. We're, we're, we're nervous about being sued because you're dealing with a nation of people who are inundated with victim thinking. I say here, insurance coverage <laughs> is the well-financed strategic anticipation of victimization. That's what insurance is. Not if you're going to have a car accident, but when. It's just a matter of time before you're going to be a victim. Not if your house is going to be broken into. Not if your house is going to catch fire. It's when. So let me sell you this policy because it's just a matter of time before you become a victim. It's, it's become institutionalized in our culture. It's just a way of life for us. You know, here in our nation now, entitlement has become politicized. This is a big one entitlement mentality in our, our nation. Something has been done to me, something was taken from me, somebody hurt me, so I'm a victim, so you owe me. It's becoming politicized now that that mentality is controlling our nation. And, and I say even here, again, I mentioned the issue with Ferguson, Missouri, that zero victim thinking is the, is the only way to push the reset button on race relations in the United States of America. Nobody's talking about this. It's not pointing the finger back and forth, but it's, it's coming to the place of having, having a zero victim mentality. That's the only way to reset race relations and some of the tensions that we're experiencing today. I mean, you got, you got just historically, you know, people groups uh, saw themselves as a victim, so they subjugate other people groups, and then the people group that was subjugated, they see themselves as as, as victims, and so they retaliate, and the cycle continues, continues, continues. It's not until we come to the place that we can develop a zero-victim mentality that you free yourself from all of those things. I, um, I talk about in the book um, my third-grade experience. I'm from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and, um, I mean, I, I grew up in kindergarten, first and second grade, where the school system was still segregated, and um, they integrated the school system in third grade, and, you know, typically, just like you think, you know, you got the black side of town. I'm telling you, it was just the city. That's just how it was. We well, I'm on the black side of town, and so they decide to, 
you know, bus some of the kids from the black side of town over to the white side of town. And um, as, as I would go to school every day on the quote-unquote white side of town and go to this new school, I, I see, man, it's, man, it's really nice. I say, you know what, man, I'd like to live in a house like that. Listen, there were no cars jacked up on the cinder blocks. Nobody's changing their oil. I mean, that's just kind of how it happened in our street. You know, you got pop cans on the street and all that stuff. But when you crossed the river, you didn't see any of that. And so that was exciting to me. I said, man, I want to move to this side of town. And so, you know, we go into school, and one of the things that's, that, was, that was impactful in my life is that when I went to school and when I discovered that my performance in school was exceptional, when I discovered that I were getting good grades and many times I was getting the best grades in time in, in the class, something clicked in my mind to cause me to know that I was anybody's equal. And from that time in third grade, I never entered a setting where I was a minority, where I ever felt inferior. I never, I never felt that I was a victim. I never felt that anybody was against me. I never felt that anybody was keeping something from me. And, and the removal of victim mentality in third grade, what it did is all of a sudden now it increased the quality of my relationships because I didn't have any baggage. Because sometimes I could really go into this, it's like if, if I have issues, it would be hard for us to connect if I always saw myself inferior to you. But when I wasn't a victim, we have great relationships. And so I'm telling you, this is something that we have to really pray into that I really think is the answer for, for America is this idea of losing victim mentality. I, I talk about that a little bit, that victim mentality, it, it has a way of um, really creating perceptions in our life. The truth of the matter is you can get stuck in a rut and become accustomed to always being the victim. An alcoholic raised twin boys. He was abusive and mean and hateful and obnoxious. Cursed them and sweat, kicked them, slapped them and beat them, abused their mothers and everything. They grew up in violence all of their life. They grew up to become young men and one of, one of the one of the Young men were staggering around in the club. Marky was sitting around in the club. They said, Marky, how come you drink? He said, because my daddy was a drunk. And I came to a terrible situation all my life. I can't help myself. How can I get away? My daddy was a drunk. And what can I do? That's all I have was love. But they said to Marky, Mikey is running a company. And whenever he goes out to do business, he won't order a drink. He orders ginger ale. And they say, Mikey, if you're going to make it up the corporate ladder, how come you don't drink? He said, my daddy wasn't drunk. Both of them went through the same things, but they perceived them differently. One of them used his crisis and his dilemma to push him over into a state of excellency whereby he refused to be the victim any longer. And the other one gets stuck in a cycle of always being the 
victim. Now, this message is not going to make you shout. And it is probably going to make you uncomfortable. If I'm any good at preaching at all, it should be able to hit you on one side of your face or the other. Somewhere before this is over, I need to be able to nick your chin or get your nose or at least pull your head. Because what is killing us is that we're always the victim. It, 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 culturally, this is not just a, a cultural issue. It can it affect anybody. It can be a gender issue. It can be a sociological issue. It can be a result of poverty. But particularly in the African-American community, because we come from tremendous abuse and slavery, we can easily become stuck in a rut of always being the victim. I'm like, this because y'all won't help me. That's why, that's why I ain't got no job. How am I going to have a job? You don't help me. You like that because you won't get your trifling behind up and go to work. They won't give me nothing. They won't help me up. They won't give me no credit. When I went down there to get the loan, they would just, I guess they would. You owe your mama, you owe cousin Richard, your last three landlords are still chasing your children to school trying to get lunch money. Go to Numbers 11, 5 through 6. You, you develop an appetite for being the victim. When you have faith, you have victim faith. Lord, touch somebody's heart to give me the money. People pray the dumbest stuff. Lord, if you would just speak to the pastor that when he gets through with this coat that you could give him, then touch his heart and I need to go. Why wouldn't you think that if God could bless me with the coat, if you can believe that he could bless me to give you the coat, then why couldn't he bless you to buy your own coat? I rebuke that price right now. I don't receive it. I command it to come down. You will go on sale 50% in the next two weeks. If you can believe that God can put the living room suit on sale for 50%, then you can also believe that God can raise your income up to the point that the price didn't make any Why don't you just say, Lord, get rid of this pain so when you send somebody, I won't be a waste in their life. God. 
He said, we remember the leeks and the onions, all the stuff we got free in Egypt. They didn't remember the master slapping them upside the head and beating them half to death and making them make bricks in the hot sun. Selective amnesia. Watch yourself when you start lusting for your past that you don't have selective amnesia. That you remember one part and forgot the other part. Next time Slick Willie calls you on the phone, you just remember how sweet it was. But remember that other woman's brassiere you found in the car. Remember everything. If you don't remember one side of it, 